Well, if you would open your Bibles or Bible apps, or you can use the pew Bibles that we have there, we're going to look at John chapter 10 today. We're going to jump right in this morning. Now, as I read this passage, what you're going to notice, because we've been going through these I am statements of Jesus, is that there are actually two separate I am statements in this text that we're going to look at this morning. And so this passage is going to be the foundation for this week, but it's actually also going to be the exact same text that we look at next week as well. Now, just to set the stage before I read the passage, uh, let's kind of figure out where we are. So two weeks ago, when we started this, we saw the connection between the celebration of Passover. Jesus is using this motif of of their their, uh, Hebrew feast of Passover uh, to describe himself as the bread of life. Last week, we saw Jesus use the Feast of the Tabernacles to connect the dots. Right, Sukkoth, which was just celebrated by the modern Jewish community here, uh, ended last Sunday. And part of the importance of that feast is, is light. And so he uses that feast, that national celebration, to share the bread, or excuse me, the, the, that he is the light of the world. So this encounter that we are looking at takes place about three months after what we studied last week. If you peek down to verse 22 in chapter 10, most translations will say that it takes place during the Feast of Dedication. Now, most of you have heard of that feast by another name, Hanukkah. What we see is in these successive chapters, John has been arranging his material to use these national holidays to build the identity and character of who Jesus is to his readers. Passover, tabernacles, and now dedication or Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah was an important celebration in the nation of Israel. Now, some of you might know the background of the holiday, uh, but just in case you don't, I'm going to give you a primer on it. About 150 years before the birth of Jesus, you had the Greeks, right? The Greek Empire was the dominant superpower of the region. And they, you know, Israel, the nation of Israel, was part of that nation. They weren't too kind to the Hebrew people. They pushed their weight around. They oppressed the Jews until it culminated culminated with a a Greek king, a Gentile, sacrificing a pig, which was an unclean animal, in the temple, which was the Jewish most holiest of spaces. Now, you you can probably imagine this was a huge no-no in that culture. There was an uprising that was called the Maccabean Revolt. If any of you uh, were raised uh, Catholic, right? The Catholic uh, canon, the Catholic Bible has 14 books, the, what's called the intertestamental period that doesn't necess- isn't usually in the Bibles that you would find in our pew. And you have the books of First and Second Maccabees, which describe these events. It's an incredible story. It was an underdog story of this small ragtag bunch of Jewish people who were victorious over the Greek oppressors at the time. And so when they cleansed and rededicated the temple, they only had enough oil to light the candles for one day. But God miraculously prolonged that time, and that oil lasted for a full eight days. And that's where we get this modern celebration of Hanukkah, eight, eight day, eight night celebration. Now that, that's the, the history of the celebration in a nutshell. But one of the important characteristics 
that was really crucial in their remembrance of this holiday was when they would recall what took place, what transpired. They reflected on the failed leadership of many of the Jewish leaders during this Maccabean era. There was corruption, there was the slow erosion of Jewish religious purity that was the result of generations of leaders who had not lived into the practices, had not lived into the expectations of God. Now keep that in mind as we read, because what you're going to see is Jesus contrasts the difference in good leadership, i.e. the good shepherd, with poor leadership, i.e. false shepherds. Let's go through it together. This is John 10, 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the ESV, but follow along with whatever you want. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, as we read this, we might see in this discourse that there are a lot of characters at play here. Jesus lists the sheep, the door, the gatekeeper, thieves and others who would climb over the wall, and the good shepherd. And we're going to take a deeper dive next week through this relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. But this week, I want to focus on Jesus' expression, 
I am the door, or I am the gate, as some translations say, which you see in verses 7 and 9. Now, to better understand this metaphor, we need to understand the sheep pen that was utilized by shepherds in the region at the time. Right? So, you know, a shepherd would lead his or her sheep out to the country to graze. But at night or after a long journey, the, the sheep would be redirected to their pen. And this enclosure was, was constructed by, you know, it was a stone wall about waist high. It was topped with thorny branches, something that might snag you if you tried to climb over it. You know, think like the precursor to, to barbed wire, I suppose. And usually this was backed up against a cliff wall or a cliff face, right? So you didn't have to, like, do the entire perimeter. You just kind of used that natural wall and then built around through it. But there was one break in the wall, a door, and it was through that door that the sheep would enter and exit through. And at nighttime, that door, that gate was either blocked with more brambles or quite often the shepherd himself or herself would lie down and sleep in the gap of the wall. Now the goal of that pen was to provide a measure of safety for the sheep at night so that predators didn't have access to them. Right? In order to get in or out, you had to go through the doorway, which was being guarded by the shepherd, the gatekeeper. So when Jesus is describing himself as this door or this gate, this is what is in view. So if Jesus is the gate, what does that mean the relationship is with two of the other characters? Right? Who are the sheep and how does the gate apply to them? And who are these thieves that Jesus talks about? So the sheep first. So we are the sheep. It's a parable. I'm not sure if it's meant to be allegorical, but it kind of leans that way. Right? And so the sheep are meant to represent something. So the sheep are the, the people of God. We are the ones under the care of Jesus as our shepherd. And there's some really neat connections. Again, just to give you a little foretaste, some really neat connections between the sheep and the shepherd that we're going to get to next week. But if we are the sheep then access to the pen, and let's just call that pen the kingdom of God, it's through the door. It's through Jesus. That is the one way in and out. We'll get to how thieves can get in in a moment, but from the perspective of the sheep, right, the sheep aren't able to jump and scale the wall. Right? It's only through Jesus that entry is permitted. Now, the ability for sheep to seek refuge in the pen was crucial to them. Remember the setting of this. This was the wilderness, the desert. This wasn't a city with, uh, with food and, and water supply lines. Right? Staples like food and water were scarce. There were plenty of predators out there in the wilderness looking for an easy meal. The desert was a desolate and desperate place. Once night would fall, the sheep were much more likely to fall prey to hunters if they were not protected. So huddling together under the supervision of the shepherd, it was crucial to their survival. So by Jesus saying that he is the door means that he alone is the sentry. It is only those who are willing to pass through him that will enter that pen and find that security. And what does it mean for us as sheep to pass through Jesus, right, to enter into the kingdom? I think we can glean part of the answer from one of the Psalms. In Psalm 118, verses 19 to 21, the psalmist says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness. 
that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So there's this link with this gate that the righteous enter and find salvation under the Lord. God provides an opportunity for people to enter into his kingdom, to enter salvation. And that offer is through the gate of the Lord. It is the righteous who are entitled to pass through the gate and enter into the kingdom. Now, if we read the entirety of the Bible, (laughs) we learn kind of a, a depressing fact that none of us are righteous. All of us, each of us, when left to our own devices, to our own desires, we're going to choose second-rate pleasures over God time and time again. Put more simply, each of us has a sin problem that prevents us from access to the kingdom of God that he's prepared for us. Now, what Jesus seems to indicate is that we are given access to that kingdom but it's not through our own righteousness, right? As I said just a moment ago, we don't have a comprehensive righteousness of our own, but it's through the righteousness of Christ. When he died on the cross, he accomplished what some label as the great exchange. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who knew no sin, was fully identified with our sin, our brokenness, that upon withstanding the consequences of those sins, that we might be given his righteousness, right, the righteousness of God. That what we need to do is merely put our faith in Christ to acknowledge our imperfections and trust that he is the one who closes the gulf between our brokenness and God's goodness. I haven't gone to this graphic in a bit, but I love it, and we're, we're going to keep going to it. This is called the, the cross chart, and it comes from a, a material that's called the gospel-centered life. And what you see here, I, this is, I think, so crucial to our understanding of the gospel. What you see here is you see these two lines separating from, from each other in the, the uh, sideways V. And that place of convergence, where they kind of come from, you might not be able to read it in the back, but there's a little line that says that's conversion. But what happens as we grow in faith is that that top line increases. Now, what it's labeled as is a growing awareness of God's holiness. The longer that we are people of faith, we stand in awe more and more of just how good, just how perfect God is. But what also increases is that bottom line, which is listed as a growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. Now, no, this doesn't mean that we're becoming more sinful, quite the contrary, but we are convicted and recognize more and more just how deep the rabbit hole of our brokenness go- goes. We understand more and more that I'm a far more broken person than I ever thought that I was. The larger the gulf between those two the larger the cross looms in our mind. We continue to look back 
at that sacrifice of Jesus, and we see more and more how crucial that act was to provide us entry into God's holiness and His kingdom. We are made right with God through Jesus. Jesus identifying Himself as the gate reminds us that He alone, through the cross alone, is our path in and out of the sheep pen, i.e. the kingdom of God. And so this is our first piece of application this morning, that Jesus is the gate, that he is the one that provides that entry for us into the kingdom. Have you sought to reach the kingdom of God solely through Jesus, or are you trying to find another avenue by which to enter that sheep pen? Right? Are you trying to go through the motions? I'm reading my Bible. I'm, being, I'm helping old ladies cross the street. I'm being nice. I'm being kind to my neighbor. I'm not cheating off an exam. Those might all be good things to do, but when we try to use that as our ticket into the gate, we find ourselves woefully inadequate. Are you trusting in Jesus as that entry point, or are you trying to find another avenue by which to enter that that kingdom? Let's move on to the thieves that Jesus talks about. In light of all this, I think this passage does point to something that might be a little bit unexpected as we read. Even though Jesus is the sole means of access for the sheep, he does acknowledge that there are some bad actors who might be present in the sheep pen. These figures that Jesus describes as thieves. Not only do they not have the best interest of the sheep in mind, but they are willing to sacrifice the sheep for their own personal gain. And this is diametrically opposed to what we see in Jesus who's willing to sacrifice himself for the gain of those in his flock. But the way the text is written, it highlights that evil can still get in the pen. While the sheep may not be able to scale the wall, those with malicious intent find ways to avoid going through the gate. Sometimes they invade the flock by entering through nefarious means. Jesus makes it clear that those who enter into the gate or that enter into the pen by other avenues are not to be trusted. C.S. Lewis picks up this motif in his book, The Magician's Nephew. I I love, if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, you should. They are beautiful pictures of the character of God, of the life of faith. I think they're meant to be written at like a fifth grade reading level. So they are beautiful books. Um, I'm actually reading it to Catherine right now. I'm not to the point that I'm going to highlight this morning, but... uh, his book, it's not the first one he published, but it's the first one chronologically. It's called The Magician's Nephew. And in it, the protagonist is a, a young boy named Diggory. And he, he and his friend Polly have accidentally left, let in a great evil into the brand new world of, of Narnia that is being formed. And you have this character who is a lion named Aslan, who is the, the divine figure in the series, tasks Diggory with securing a golden apple from a faraway garden on top of a steep hill. And so Diggory makes this trek to this garden, and when he arrives at the gates of the garden, this is what he reads. And I I think Lewis is trying to channel a little bit of what we see in Jesus here. He reads this, Come in by the gold gates or not at all. Take of my fruit for others or forbear. For those who steal or those who climb my wall, shall find their heart's desire and find despair. So Diggory enters through the gates, 
And he prepares to take a piece of fruit for Aslan, and what he spots is he spots that great evil, the white witch just devouring the fruit. It describes as like the juice, this dark juice is on all over her face. He knows that she must have scaled the fence in order to gain entry, and she is not to be trusted. And what does she do? She tries to convince him to take the fruit for himself, to thwart Aslan, God's plans. Right? Dickory has a mother that is dying at home, and so she has a, you know, the witch has a, 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 a foothold into him so that he should help her instead of obeying Aslan. When he rebuffs her, she turns violent and attempts to attack him. The gate is the opening into the garden, which is to be entered by those who are trusted, those who are friends. But even with the century of Jesus, evil might still be present. In the beginning of scriptures, we can think of another garden, one that was considered a paradise. And for years, I had read the the Garden of Eden wrong. I had thought about it as this perfect place that God had designed for humanity, for his glory. But the garden was not perfect because before the fall, before sin entered into the world, the presence of evil was already there in the form of the serpent. Those who sneak into the garden are not to be trusted. I think this is what this means for us, that if we consider Jesus as the gate that we enter into his security by faith, that by trusting in Jesus, we are given access to the kingdom. That's what I said for the first half. But that access through faith does not necessarily equate with safety. Jesus speaks the parable in a way that we are still to be on our guard, that there are still malevolent forces out there who seek to undermine the kingdom of God, to seek to bring ruin to his people, to steal, kill, and destroy the flock of God, the people called according to his name. So what I want to posit with you this morning, what I want to suggest is that safety is an illusion. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Evil and suffering exist in the same place that we declare that God's kingdom is here on earth. We pray for God's will, right, in the Lord's prayer that his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, but all the while we experience suffering and it feels like that end goal is just so far away. For many in in my generation, one of the defining moments of our lives were the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Many of us can remember precisely the spot we were in when we first heard the news or we first saw the videos of the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. It was a Tuesday. I had already gone to my math class without a care in the world. I returned and friends started sending instant messages online about the attack. That veil of safety that many of us felt and assumed in America had been torn. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, suffering exists. A colleague with my previous employer was with the CCO, Coalition for Christian Outreach, wrote a blog post, blog post that shared her family story of September 11th. Heather Strong Moore's brother, Jesse, had joined the Marine Corps the summer of 2001 before there was any indication of a threat 
to be evident. The day of the attack, he called home and told his mom, he said, Mom, this, he said, Mom, I'm ready. This is what I was trained for. He was deployed in the fall of 2004 after finishing college and starting seminary and was killed in action on January 26, 2005. I, I can't imagine the grief of the family, the grief that so many families share. But being faithful followers of Jesus did not prevent their suffering. They were in this proverbial sheep pen, part of the family of God, but the thief is out there to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a philosophical conundrum that I think all believers ought to grapple with. Four statements. God exists. God is all-powerful. God is good. Evil exists. There are a number of philosophers who believe that all four of those statements cannot be true at the same time. That the presence of evil for them suggests that either God isn't real, right? That he isn't capable of dealing with evil. He's not powerful enough. Or he may not be as good and loving as we think he is if he's not willing to eradicate, fix the problem with our world. But we as believers have to find a way to reconcile that. Because I'm going to continue to highlight and to to proclaim all those first three statements, that God is real, that he is all-powerful, and that he is good. So how do we grapple, how do we reconcile the presence of evil? Right here in our text, we see our king. We see Jesus inviting us to seek refuge in the shelter of his wings, but he acknowledges the presence of evil. He states that there are going to be false shepherds, Thieves that in their own self-interest will oppress, will murder, will wreak havoc on his beloved. Until Jesus comes back, this is the reality that we live in. That time in between where God has established his kingdom, but we wait patiently and desperately for its fulfillment. I mean, there's so much more that could be said about that. It's it's probably a, a message in itself, how we reconcile that. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I have some answers. I don't know if they're the right answers to it of why God delays bringing things about. But it's something that, you know, if we want to live in a bubble and just ignore that there is a seemingly philosophical contradiction, then we're not doing ourselves, we're not doing our faith any any favors. Faith is meant to to be stretched, to to be maybe torn mildly, the example that I've often heard is, is lifting weights. You know, you go down to Planet Fitness and you, you pump some iron. I don't. You might not be able to tell. But, you know, what happens whenever you do that is your muscles tear. And then they regrow. And when they regrow, they regrow stronger than they were before. And that's how you can bulk up. The same is to be said about faith, and I think the presence of suffering. Jesus gave gave us. He didn't say everything was going to be hunky-dory. He said there's going to be some bad actors there. We need to figure out how do we reconcile that? How do we live in light of that? And we might see some, some strain on our faith. But then we go back to the scriptures. We go back to the prayer. We go back to the community of believers to see, right? Think about that like the protein powder, you know? that provides those raw materials for that muscle of faith to grow back stronger. 
This morning, we've looked at Jesus' metaphor as the door. In it, he communicates that he is the path the righteous enter into the kingdom, that those who belong to him are paraded into the gates of that kingdom. Jesus says this in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, that wide is the gate that leads to destruction. There is an easy way you can go that many are going to go to, but the righteous, those called according to Jesus' name, enter through a narrow gate. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. We'll take a look next week at the closer relationship between the shepherd and our Savior, or excuse me, the sheep and our Savior, the shepherd. But we also saw this morning that proximity to Christ is not a formula for a pain-free life. Safety is an illusion. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus makes it clear that there are false shepherds, that there are evil, there is evil out there who leave suffering in their wake. When we come face to face with the struggles of life, we are called to stand firm in the truth and the hope of the gospel. I think Jesus does have a lot to say about pain and suffering, and we will get there uh, in, t- in a few weeks. I think it's in two weeks, yeah. We're going to see the death, one of the I am statements, John 11, the death of a close friend of Jesus and the way that he responds to that death, I think indicates a lot about his perspective of suffering and what is to come. In these examples, they showcase that while we walk, because I want to give you some hope. I know suffering's out there, and that might be a, a message of despair. But while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Christ is with us. The psalmist said in 20, Psalm 23, his rod and his staff bring comfort. And the suffering that we do experience is but a temporary setback on the scope of eternity. Hopefully those are some, some words of encouragement for you this morning. As we, you know, each and every week, one of the things I want to do is provide us some opportunities to reflect. Um, I'll post these online, um, but some questions to to reflect upon. The first is this. We had this metaphor of Jesus as the gate, and if he is the gate, what that's indicating is that he's the only way in and out of the kingdom. How does that motivate you to be a herald of his goodness. We even heard Ty share a little bit about that. Like, what does it mean for him to be a herald, a representation of Christ to share with those that he's interacting with? Second is this problem of evil. How do you reconcile the goodness and power of God with the presence of evil in our world? Don't just be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand when it comes to that. Work that out. Figure out uh, your worldview, your framework for how those things can be reconciled together. And lastly, what motivates you to stand firm in your faith when you experience suffering? Suffering is, it's a given. We all are going to suffer in some manner. How do we hold fast to the hope and truth of Christ in our faith in the midst of those times? Are there things that make us want to just throw in the towel? How do you remain steadfast in light of that? Let's pray, and then we'll we'll close with a, a final song. Lord, you have given lots of metaphors to who you are. You have, as we've been looking these last few weeks, you have given us uh, clues into your identity, to your character and your goodness. Lord, you've shown that you are the provider uh, by being the, the bread of life for us. 
You've shown that you are the one who wants to come and bring healing in our lives, being the light of the world to provide illumination of our dark places and give us clarity on the path that we are on. We see here this morning, Lord, that you are the gate. You are that entry point into the kingdom. And Lord, I pray that each one of us has connected with you in that way, has walked through that doorway of faith. But Lord, you are not just, in the words of Tim Keller, the cross, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the kingdom. It's not just the entry point and that's it, but it is the A to Z. It is that thing that keeps us maintained in the kingdom. May we hold fast to your goodness as we experience suffering. As we watch the news and we can just see the brokenness of the world, whether it be far away or close to home. Lord, give us moments of comfort where we can experience your presence. Holding fast to the conviction of the saints for the generations. Trusting in your truth and your love through the cross. Lord, we lift all this up to you in Christ's name. Amen.